We're going to read out of Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria, to distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh and look and go there to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gav the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their region together greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, and the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up his city and all it contains. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry his bones from the house, and he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And the one will say, no one. Then he will answer, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Do horses run on rocks or does one plow with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in labor and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karen? For ourselves. For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Abraf. Good morning. I'd like us to do a really quick exercise. Only going to take a minute. Could you guys say hello to one another again and just do it like it's a formality and just kind of do it because we do it every Sunday. Just do it like that for 10 seconds. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Okay, thank you. That's how it usually is every Sunday. That's what we kind of do, right? We just kind of greet. Now let's do a little tweak in the mentality here. Greet somebody like they're your best friend that you haven't seen in a really long time. <laughs> or a family member, like, like a favorite aunt that you just haven't seen in a really long time and you're just so excited and you'd love to see them. Greet them like that. Ten seconds, go. Okay, enough love fest, enough love fest. That's good, thank you, thank you. Okay, so if you call Regen your home, please greet people like that next time. Because uh, I think people would kind of feel your love. And uh, even though if I were out there with you doing that stuff, I would feel so uncomfortable. Because that is just not me. But I realized, like just being part of it, like I could just feel that up here too. So. Let's do that, okay? So if you're a visitor, thank you for being our guinea pigs. You were part of our pilot program of our 
love greeting. Okay, so if you're new here, never been here, we just kind of go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because some of you may be wondering, why in the world is that guy teaching out of Amos 6? Like, what is that all about? You just happen to come at a week where this is what we're talking about. So if I say anything that is personal to you, that you're offended, and you're like, oh, my spouse or my friend must have told them about the thing I'm going through, and he's addressing that very thing. Yes, that's true. I did talk to people, and I conspire with people all the time, and we collude, and we talk about specific people all the time. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit has something to do with it, too. So that's kind of how we just go through things here. And so here we are, Amos chapter 6, and before I get started, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, and this morning is We go through this chapter, Uh, some of this stuff is difficult, and some of this stuff we may be kind of wandering off because we don't quite see how it pertains to our life, but Holy Spirit, as you are so dynamic in how you work in people's lives, may you make this applicable to each person here. May you make it more than just information that we can regurgitate and that we can just kind of know as a historical thing, but may it become knowledge that is enacted. May this be more than just a conviction or a feeling that, oh yeah, I would really like to change, but nothing comes about it. May you give courage, give empowerment, give people the ability to act upon the things that they need to so that they draw closer to you and conform more into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been with us through this Amos series, you're getting a clearer picture of how relevant this book is to today's church, even though Amos wrote this in 8th century B.C. And there have been a lot of parallels between the kingdom of Israel back in this time and our nation today. Now, my hope and my prayer is that we don't go down this path. But just like last week when Amos was sharing this with a lament. I'm kind of along that same boat. I am grieved that we are on the same path. And in chapter 6, Amos addressed those in power and influence over a nation, namely the kingdom of Israel, Israel in the northern kingdom, Judah in the southern kingdom. And from this, we can take application from his words to the leaders of the nation back then and apply it to our own nation, our own city, our own church, and ourselves. So, Let's just jump into verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Now Amos' words were addressed to the notable men of Zion, so Jerusalem. And he brings these leaders of a nation, those who have power and influence over a nation, a word from God. And included in this first verse is this, notable men of the first nations. Now you notice that nations is plural. Amos addressed the most notable people of the most powerful nations here. And so our equivalent today would probably be like the G8, right? make that G7 now because Russia's doing all that Crimean crisis stuff. So they kind of got booted out. So G7, okay? So the most powerful nations of that time were comfortable in their capital cities, feeling they were untouchable by the people, but forgetting that they were not beyond the rebuke of God. Any of this sound familiar? Because this is kind of what's happening with Russia, right? They were invited to be part of this G8 summit. It was supposed to be in Russia. And so the other seven decided, 
we're not going to have it in Russia because of what you guys are doing with the Crimean crisis. We're going to meet in Belgium. They have better fries there anyway. And so we're going to have our G7 summit there and just have our Belgian fries. And do you think at all that Putin cares? He doesn't like potatoes, that guy. Do you think Russia cares? See, they don't think anyone in the world can tell them what to do, can advise them of what to do. But I don't think it's just Russia. I think the United States has the same attitude. It has the same posture. And even though nations throw sanctions at each other and they threaten each other and they do things to try to influence those notable leaders of those nations that they lead, they seem to all forget that God holds them accountable. And Amos calls out all these nations and the people who are caught up in their arrogant pride and their self-righteousness and their self-satisfaction, all of which are character traits that are completely contrary to the character of God. And character qualities that will bring the downfall of nations and cities and families and churches and people. So Amos starts out with the leaders, the notable ones of the nations. People who are at ease in their capital cities, who feel secure in their nations with no knowledge that 40 years from that point, they would be completely destroyed. And at that time, they had no idea about the power and the intention of the Assyrians. They thought that the most powerful guys were at the table and they all knew each other. You know, we're all the notable leaders of these nations. So they were at ease and they felt secure. Now, who's in the G8? Canada, I, I don't understand that one, but they are. <laughs> France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, United Kingdom, and the United States, and the European Union, they have this delegation that's there as well. And I think there's a nation, or possibly nations, not in that group of notable leaders of the most powerful nations, that is growing in power, and that they don't have a clear idea of what their intentions will be. Call it a hunch based off of Revelation. And while all of these first world nations are at ease and they feel secure, judgment is brewing somewhere else. And we don't know it because of our arrogance and our self-righteousness and our self-satisfaction. What are we pridefully arrogant, self-righteous, and self-satisfied about? Well, there's a lot of things, a ton of things. And I just want to bring out one huge one, though, and I think that is our morality. The moral decay of our nation, of our society, of our culture is killing us. We are cannibalizing ourselves, and we don't even know it. Our notable leaders the powers and influence of the most powerful nations seem to be at ease with this. And they seem secure in their own moral stances. The moral stances that they stand on change. It just depends on the votes out there. It just depends on the money out there. It just depends on politics. It really has nothing to do with morality. And like the Israelites of the 8th century BC, I don't think those guys have a clue that judgment is coming. There is much more concern over economics than there is morality. And it's not that a concern over economics is bad. It's just that there is no regard to God. 
So yes, the privileges we have in our country are extremely important. Our freedom of speech, our freedom of religion, our education system, the ability to do commerce, but all of these privileges will end without God. And our prideful arrogance, our self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, it's blinding our nation to the justice of God. Thinking that we're going to be fine and the only way for our country to go is up. And so the debate continues about health care and taxes and military and all the other hot topics while ignoring God and his righteousness in the entire process of these debates going on. Verse 2, pass over to Kalna and see and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Now what's happening here? They're comparing themselves to these surrounding people and these nations that don't even know God. And so in light of these pagan people and their nations, they justify themselves that, hey, we're not that bad. We're not that bad. And we're actually better than them. And so they consider themselves better than those around them and that no other nation's citizenship is more valuable than theirs. And isn't that a huge part of pride and arrogance is when you start comparing things and saying we're better in these ways and so you start comparing it and that's how pride and arrogance they get inflated we start comparing and seeing how we're so much better verse 3 oh you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seats of violence so these guys they hid themselves and they hid their people from the prospect of an evil day and instead of just being honest and saying you know, things are bad in our nation. We need to shape up. We need to repent. These leaders are claiming everything is fine. We're okay. And the more that, that resistance is practiced, the, the greater the consequences of judgment. God's judgment will be more severe. We must live in a reality that does not allow our pride and our arrogance to blind us thinking that by comparing ourselves to others who seem worse, that we're good. But really, we're just not as worse, if that makes any sense. See, our standard is God. It is not another nation. It is not a neighbor. It is not another family. It is not another church. It's not another person. Our standard is God. And we'll be judged by God according to His holiness, His righteousness, no one else's. And Amos confronts us with our pride, with our arrogance. Verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now witness the indulgence here. Lying on beds of ivory, stretched out on couches, feasting, entertainment, drinking, anointing themselves with the finest oils and all the other privileges of having wealth and an indulgent society. Does any of this sound like our culture? Now, what was their culture all about? Beds of ivory. What's that all about? sex 
right? Sex, sex in their culture. And you know, sex is nowhere in our culture today. Stretch themselves out on their couches. Slothfulness, laziness, leisure in a negative way, not in a good way. Bad way, right? Feasting on lambs and calves, just gluttony. Leisure, gluttony, sex. Music and entertainment, not songs of edification, but things of degradation. Drinking, just drunkenness. Anointing themselves with the finest oils, just luxury and indulgence. All of this, I just imagine walking into Nordstrom, and this is all there. <laughs> Hi, welcome. There, and then you see the bed, you see the, the mannequins half-dressed, and all this stuff. And you're seeing all this kind of stuff, and people just hanging out, listening to the classical piano, and all this stuff. And they have a cafe, and all this kind of stuff, right? And the music's going on. That's what it is. Now, didn't Amos cover in the 8th century B.C., 3,000 years ago, a lot of the stuff that is marketed to us today? How did a guy, a shepherd, in 8th century B.C., hit the nail so square on the head about things that we're caught up today in 2014? God? And while we're busy with our indulgence and our consumerism and our materialism, 300,000 American children are at risk of being trafficked in the sex industry, according to the U.S. Department of State. And you know where the largest number of children are rescued from in terms of sex trafficking? You know where that is? It's just right across the bay. San Francisco where we're supposed to be on the front lines and we're so progressive and, and all the political front movement. Why are most children rescued in all of the United States coming out of there? Really? So advanced? So progressive? The average age of a girl starting in sex trafficking is 12 from the data I've gotten, but it's actually trending lower. I sit on the board of New Day for Children, and we've taken 10-year-olds and boys, which people don't ever talk about. Yes, by far girls. But boys are trafficked also, and their age is actually lower. It's 11. And do you know where the majority of them are found? Right there. But no one talks about that because they're on the front lines. They're so progressive. Things are so advanced and things are going so... How can we possibly think that we're all that and we have so much, but so little is done for that one problem in a myriad of problems in our nation, in our city, and in our families? Yes. Progressive. Amos wrote this 3,000 years ago. Right? And yet it is so relevant, isn't it? They lived in the ease and the security of their capital cities and they had so much and they did not turn to God with thanksgiving and they did not treat others with love and mercy, no compassion towards the poor and those who needed help. And you recall in Amos chapter 4, when God intervened in so many ways, even negative ways, to get their attention, to return to him, yet they did not do that. Quick review, Amos chapter 4 starting in verse 6. God speaking here, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and I carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So rebellious when they had so much, so rebellious when they had so little, like in chapter 4, where God has intervened in our lives trying to get our attention, even through negative things, yet we did not return to him. But that's what arrogance and pride do. That's what self-satisfaction does. That's what self-righteousness does. They blind us to God working in our lives. Now, look at the end of verse 6 in chapter 6 here. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, what's this about? To get a better picture of this, we have to turn to Genesis chapter 37, where the story of Joseph is. You don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, you're just like Joseph's brothers. Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, that's Joseph. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, Reuben's his brother, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that awesome technicolor robe thing, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. You know what this means? There's no water to break his fall. Like, plop, right? Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. God is not pleased with how people are mistreated with no justice and with no righteousness. And he wasn't pleased with how Joseph was mistreated. He's not pleased with how we mistreat people. Now, God is extremely patient. Generation after generation, all throughout human history, we've mistreated people. Throughout our existence, and we've had societies and cultures full of pride, full of arrogance, full of self-righteousness, full of self-satisfaction, 
who have been at ease in their capital cities while so many people are hurting and need help. God will judge that. Verse 7, Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Disastrous consequences when we mistreat people when we don't extend justice, when we don't extend righteousness. All these people died. Nowhere to hide, died. So many dead that the relatives couldn't even give a proper burial. They had to cremate so that the bones were then brought out of the house. And things were so bad that they had to remind one another not to mention the name of the Lord. In other words, not to curse God because this judgment was brought about by their own doing. So it's not God's fault. We don't curse God for this. This is us. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. No justice, no righteousness from these people. Therefore judgment came. See, justice was turned into poison. Righteousness was turned into wormwood. Amos used these rhetorical questions to point out their lack of justice, their lack of righteousness. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? No. No. So if that doesn't happen, then why has justice been turned into poison? Because that's as absurd as running your horse on rocks. Why has the fruit of righteousness been turned into wormwood? Because that's as absurd as plowing on those rocks with oxen. It's absurd. But arrogant and prideful people, they prefer their lies to the truth. Believing progress has been made when it hasn't. And you know, we can be really fooled pretty easily. And we, we kind of just follow things and we can be fooled pretty easily. And as the 8th century B.C. religious folks they were fooled pretty easily. A bunch of religious stuff going on. Their churches or temples, synagogues, things like that. They were booming back then. But the thing was, God was not present in there. And a bunch of feasts and assemblies and offerings and music. But none of it with God. No obedience, no morality, no righteous justice. And it wasn't because they were insincere. Right? These people were very sincere. But sincerity does not make something true. Sincerity does not make something right. When feelings and sincerity, when they contradict God, when they contradict His Word, it is our feelings and our sincerity that is out of place. It is our feelings and our sincerity that have become the idols of our lives. Straying from God, straying from the Scriptures was what led Israel away from the truth. And we do much of the same thing today. Because our nation is not seeking God. We're seeking what feels good. 
Isn't that right? We seek what feels good. We're not looking to the scriptures for truth. We're looking at worldly wisdom and we're looking at how things make us feel good. But that changes all the time. It is not stable. And as long as it's sincere and people feel good with it, then we accept it. Right? Well, then we all accept it and we try to have other people accept why we feel good and we try to get people to accept why we believe what we believe. And so then we start adjusting our religion to fit us rather than adjusting to the Scriptures. And so we start making God out to whom we want Him to be rather than listening to who God said He is through His Word. He's already told us. And then... If we can't change it, or if other people can't change it within us, then we're demonized. And our God is demonized. And the Bible is demonized. And everyone that follows it is demonized. Because we don't help them feel good. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnain for ourselves? So this is what's happening here. They overstated how great they were. And they were crediting themselves with how great they were. Notice these phrases. By our own strength. For ourselves. See, God had nothing to do with it, huh? He didn't do any of that, huh? Everything for yourself. Now, what was Karnain about? Karnain was an awesome military victory by the Israelites. It was a military victory that took people's attention off of what really mattered so that they could boast about a military conquest. Has that ever happened in the United States? Ever? When we have more pressing matters to put our attention on, but then suddenly we're in a military conflict. Hmm. How did that happen? Happens here. This was an interesting stat as I was doing research. Since the birth of our nation, 1776, we've only had 21 years of existence when we haven't been in war. Did you know that? Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that all of those wars weren't for legitimate reasons. I am so appreciative of our military and what they've done to preserve our freedom. But this is what's really staggering to me. 217 years out of the 238 years of the United States' existence, we've been engaged in war. 217 years. I think something's not right. We've never had a peaceful president. Do you realize that? Never. Every president that the United States has ever had has been engaged in war. Now, some inherited that war or not. doesn't matter. But each president has been engaged in war that's been in office. Is our nation saying that there was not more pressing things for us to address in 217 years that we've been at war? Is it possible that we've overstated how great we are in any of those 217 years of war to cover up what really mattered. To cover up our weaknesses. To cover up our failures. Again, I'm not saying that every war we've been in was not justified. 
Not at all. Hitler had to be confronted. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I don't think we take care of our veterans enough. But the number of wars we've been in is an astonishing thing. It's crazy. Now, to bring this closer to home, what about our church and our personal lives? What about our families? Are we guilty of being self-absorbed like these Israelites? Doing things by my own strength. For myself. Covering up things that really matter. Covering up our weaknesses and failures by overstating some other victory or success in our ministry or our personal life. You bet we do that. We do that all the time. Don't people do that with education? Don't people do that with their profession? And the things that matter like their kids and their spouse and their family? Well, I got to do this. I got to go get that other degree. I got to get that career advancement. And we do this all the time. And we need to be careful about our self-reliance and our independence from God. So many have become self-reliant and they boast in themselves. I got that degree. I worked that hard. I made that business work. I did this stuff for my family, for my church, for my whatever. None of it's yours. It's not yours. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31. through For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Self-reliance is a sure path to foolishness. Boasting about ourselves, that's just ridiculous. That is ridiculous. If you ever want to be humbled, I have a secret for you. Have children. They are brutally honest. Brutally honest. Try boasting about yourself in front of an eight-year-old girl. They put you in your place quick. And the thing about hearing this from the Bible is that, you know what, you need to act on this. You can't just keep listening to this stuff. Don't just take this as information or as just like a little conviction thing here. you got to apply it. And whatever you hear from the Holy Spirit this morning, you have to act on it. You can't just sit on this. God said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul pleads this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What you hear from God, whether that is coming to salvation in a relationship with Jesus or his instruction to act on something, it is time to act on it. There is no guarantee that you're going to hear from him again. There is no guarantee that you're going to be alive to hear from him again. And so when you hear from God, it's time to act. Now, Amos has a lot to say to our nation, to our church, to each one of us individually. And the thing is, is what is he saying to you? What is he saying to you personally? Is he challenging that you are too self-reliant? That you're 
too comfortable? That you're lacking justice? That you're lacking righteousness? That arrogance is kind of playing in there? Because we're all going to be held accountable for how we live our lives, how we extend justice, how we extend righteousness. Last verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Now, Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This was King Solomon's kingdom from the very north to the very south. And God restored the border from Lebo Hamath way up north to the Sea of Arabah, the river of Egypt, but it will be Israel's no longer. It will be wiped out. Now, you remember in verse 2, Kalna, Hamath, and Gath. Well, all of these cities were destroyed, prominent cities all destroyed because of their sin. And what God is saying is that no one's exempt. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how many notable leaders you have, however at ease you are and secure you are in your capital, no one's exempt. We are all held accountable for our injustice and our unrighteousness. If the most powerful, influential, notable people of the greatest nations were held accountable by God because of their injustice and their unrighteousness, surely we are too. So whatever you hear from God, act upon it. Is He calling you to repentance? Is He calling for you to have a relationship with Him? Repent now. Is He calling you to justice? Do justice now. Is He calling you to righteousness? Act upon that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we have this warning that you issue to our nation, to our city, to our churches, to our family, to us individually. And I pray, God, that they would not fall on deaf ears, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to us and that we would act in accordance to your leading that is consistent with your word, Lord. And I pray, Father, for the people here this morning that you would give them courage, that you would give them power to go about doing the things you've called them to do. In Jesus' name, amen.